Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland, and today I'm joined by Ronan Lyons, Professor of Public Health at Swansea University. Ronan's research focuses on the spread of COVID-19, how it's impacting the population, and how effective the countermeasures are. Ronan, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Renhounda, thank you very much, Sam. I'm delighted to be here. Can I just start off uh, by asking you to introduce what you do, introduce your research, and tell us some of your key findings? I'm a data scientist with a medical background. I'm a professor of public health at Swansea University. And for a good number of years now, we have been using a system, a privacy protecting system to link data together in the entire population of Wales. It's it's called the Sale Data Bank. And we use that to actually um, study very many different health conditions. But since last year, we've turned our attention about how we're using that data to understand how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting the Welsh population and the uh, effectiveness of countermeasures. Great. And how has your work helped the Welsh and British public? So one of the things that we did very early on as the pandemic came upon is that we offered um, our entire team's um, efforts to the Chief Medical Officer in Wales, Frank Atherton. And as, as a result of that, Frank was very keen to take on, on board our, our expertise. So we, we set out and we created a group which covers many different disciplines across Wales, bringing data together and undertaking analysis, which show how the spread is happening and who's being affected. Also, the effects of the pandemic on the population who aren't infected, because there have been many impacts on the NHS. And more recently, then, we've been looking at how effective the vaccines are and whether there are any issues with them. So I report to a, a, a group which is called the Welsh Government COVID-19 Technical Advisory Group. It's equivalent to another group people will have heard of called SAGE, which was the Scientific Advisory Group on Epidemics, and that reports to the UK government. So we conduct a series of analysis and feedback that intelligence, and that intelligence then is used to actually understand what's happening and help develop the policies and the responses to the pandemic. So the fact that obviously the the past year has changed pretty much everything that lots of people focus on, does this mean that you and people that you've worked with have had to stop focusing on other things to then turn your attention to COVID? Yes, in, in, in a nutshell. Um, we haven't completely stopped, but we have largely stopped many other scientific investigations into the health of the public and conditions and multiple morbidity amongst them to divert our attention almost full time to trying to understand what's happening with this um, pandemic. Is that going to have negative consequences for the other stuff that you were working on? Well, it, it's, it's delayed quite a lot of that research considerably. The vast majority of the research that we conduct is funded by the research councils and charities in, in the UK. And they have been very understanding, um, given that the absolute priority that the COVID pandemic 
ha- has taken on board to give us some leeway. But eventually, yes, we will have to catch up on what we've been doing. The reason I asked the question is I was reading something by, I think, Professor Carol Sikora, who um, is an oncologist. I think he'd written something in The Times a few weeks ago. But he had said that basically there's a ticking cancer time bomb now in, in the public because diagnosis rates are are very low, but obviously cancers haven't gone away. So that, that, that's kind of the genesis of my question there, wondering whether this almost total turning of attention to, to COVID has kind of, you know, negative and unforeseen consequences. No, no, absolutely. So there are a number of ways of looking at the pandemic and its impact on the population. Mainly, they, they divide into two groups, if you like, the direct effects of COVID on the people who are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, then how that affects their health and their hospitalization, intensive care and mortality in that. And then there's the what is regarded as the indirect effects on the general population, which is because of the disruption to the NHS and, and many aspects of society, like normal activities, for example, what the NHS would usually be doing, has been suspended in large part during the worst of the lockdowns. And that has had a huge impact, and we've we've carried out some work. There's backloads for many different conditions, quite a bit of concern that we have delayed presentation of cancer, and also that we're failing to, if you like, investigate and treat them on on time. So that's mm-hmm. a, that's quite a big concern. And is is your focus always medical out of interest? Because when you talk about the way that the the pandemic uh, and, and COVID is affecting people who aren't directly affected by it or say don't have symptoms who aren't very ill obviously my my mind as someone who's a historian someone who deals more with kind of arts humanities politics that kind of stuff my mind sometimes goes to you know the psychological impacts of people who are shielding maybe lonely the sort of mental health impacts the educational impacts people who've missed a lot of school as well does this stuff come into your remit or would you say it's far more medical no very much so We, we have quite a holistic view of health And so we will look at a lot of social and economic aspects, as well as, if you like, the direct health consequences. And yes, we are looking at what the impact is on schools. We're looking at what the impact is on on mental health, which you could easily fits more easily into the health aspect, but also on some of the economic uh, impacts. Um, A lot of people have been laid off work or earning less or will be laid off as a result of this. So... You, you do need to look at this from a very broad societal perspective. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. And before we talk, just one, one last question before we talk about the specifics of your research. Do you think in, you know, maybe months or even a couple of years time, we'll look back at lockdown and think that it was quite a blunt tool to use because of all of these unforeseen consequences that we've just talked about? Undoubtedly, there will be lots of lockbacks and and lessons learned from that. I don't think we will look back and conclude that the lockdowns were excessive. I, I think it's more likely that we will look back and conclude that we didn't actually act fast enough. And had we acted a bit faster, we would have had shorter durations of lockdowns. I, I should probably put my cards on the table and say that I'm lucky to be in a very, very low risk group. You know, I'm I'm relatively young. I think I'm relatively fit and healthy. And 
sometimes I have to sort of stop and think, this past year has been so extraordinary in almost every single way. And the shutting off of, of liberty for lots of people who, you know, like me, are, are at a very low risk of, of, of becoming seriously ill from COVID. I just wonder whether speaking, you know, having this this opportunity to speak to someone like you who's so been so involved in actual affecting policy making and decision making, has the blanket approach to everybody, you know, lockdown for everybody who who can be locked down. Again, do we think do we think in in the long run that will be seen as 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 the the cleverest way of going about it? I think people will look at how well different societies and countries did in this. Mm. And if you look sort of across the world, I mean, most people at this point in time think, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to be living in New Zealand or Australia? <laughs> yes. Because they have a lot of liberties, which we, we currently don't have. And the reason they have those is that their lockdowns were so stark and successful in suppressing the infection that they could reopen quicker. The problem we have really is that, yes, lots of lots of young people will have little or no or mild effects of COVID in terms of making them sick enough to go to hospital or to die. We still, however, don't really understand, and, and that's a focus for research, is what proportion of younger people will suffer from what's now being called long COVID? Because there are lots of anecdotal reports of people who've had this infection, pure to recover from it, but have really long lingering problems. And that seems to be as common in younger people as it is in older people. So if you like, the youth don't completely get away from from this. And there are sadly quite a number of deaths in younger people as well as in older people. Not it is risk of death is very strongly age related, but it's not nil for younger people. The other aspect that I'd, I'd say is that this is a really highly infectious respiratory disorder. It spreads a lot quicker than the flu and others. So at the moment, because of the social distancing and the masks and all of that, we haven't really seen any influenza or other respiratory viruses this year at all. You know, the distancing that people are doing is so good, it's cut those out almost entirely, but it still hasn't quite cut out the, the COVID spread. And so whilst younger people are unlikely, if you like, to be seriously affected, bear in mind what I said a a moment ago about long COVID, they do, of course, spread the disease very easily, as everybody does to every other group. And that includes much more people who are vulnerable from health conditions and older people. So you can't really have a a two-tier system whereby if you like, those at higher risk are completely separated from those at much lower risk. And I think, we, you know, we all will appreciate the efforts people have gone to, to try to limit the spread of infection and its consequences. Mm, it's been a, it's been sacrifices all around, hasn't it? But I, I, I read this about influenza, which is fascinating. That it almost seems to have disappeared. How can the measures that we're taking mean that influenza disappears, but COVID doesn't? And the reason for that is actually COVID is a lot more infectious mm. than influenza. People will have come across things called or not and things like this, or replication number, essentially, of viruses and how many people each infection would likely to spread to. Now, the most infectious virus that we really have seen is measles. And people will forget that before we had measles vaccines, which nowadays come in the MMR vaccine, we used to have huge, if you like, epidemics of measles every two years. 
it would be so infectious, it would almost infect everybody. Mm. And then it would only stop because it had run out of children to infect. And it would need to wait two years until we had enough children who were susceptible and off it would go again. So every two years, almost every child would have got it. But whilst COVID is not as infectious as, as measles, it is more infectious than influenza. And that's why the social isolation and the masks, the hand washing and all of that, which is curtailing COVID, but not completely, is good enough to you know curtail um, the spread of influenza. I understand. It's it's fascinating to actually be speaking to somebody who, you know, for the last year we've heard a lot about bodies like Sage. We've heard a lot about the the experts who are influencing government thinking. So this just this is why I'm sort of picking up on lots of lots of things because it's a it, it's it's an excellent opportunity for me to actually pick the brains of somebody. And just that I know I said my final point a minute ago, but I'm gonna, this is going to be my final point before we get back to your specific research. The, the medical advice in the past year has 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 been, hasn't it, quite, coming back to this idea of liberties, it's been quite liberty denying. I mean, when, when I think about how young people have been told they can't really go on dates or meet up with their friends, that people can't get married, that, you know, grandparents can't hug their grandchildren, this, this sort of stuff. Is it the job of people who advise governments from a medical perspective to actually balance these things up as well and think that, you know, at what cost does liberty get sacrificed? Or is that the politician's job? Being involved in one of these groups has been very interesting because they have a very wide range of expertise feeding into them. There are behavioural scientists, data scientists, microbiologists, virologists, lots of different people, Mm. uh, people with backgrounds in in the arts and and history and economics. So I think there's um, lots of different views that go into the thinking. But advisory groups like the one I, I sit on provide, if you like, scientific scenarios and analysis and advice, but don't decide on the policy. Mm. So the policy decisions are decided upon by the politicians. And that's why they're there, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it, that's true. I mean, they're actually elected to do that. I'm not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but do, do you still feel the weight of responsibility, is, I suppose, is, the, is, my, is, is my very short way of asking these questions? It's a, it's a lot to ask the population to do, isn't it, for grandparents not to hug their grandchildren, for example? Oh, it, it is. I mean, we, we're all missing out on that. But I, I think what, what we do as scientists here is to actually put together the best evidence in front of the policymakers as to what's happening and also what do we think will happen if you change some of the exposures and loosen up things or, or tighten up things? And I think everybody is aware of the huge social impact this is having. Um, there's a lot of people suffering from loneliness. There's quite a lot of big mental health burden right across the population. So there are, there are many things that people are missing out on. But you also have to remember that we have lost probably in the region of 170,000 people in the UK from this condition at this point in time. See, these figures change over time. So there's quite a lot of dead people. A lot of people no longer have their grandparents. So so there's this aspect of what you'd like to do, but also not willing to actually put those who are most at risk at risk by closer contact. Yeah, it's a fascinating weighing up of the power of the, the the state and kind of the individual, isn't it? And, and and of course, there are there are crossovers between the two. Let, let's get back to your work, Ronan. Can you tell me? You talked about working with members of the public. How do they help guide your work and your investigations? 
Right. So we use information that's collected on, on the public through many different sources, including the NHS. The information that we use has been de-identified, so all the identities have been stripped from it and then linked together to allow us to so say, let's say, track where the infections are happening and to sort of what, what type of groups. All the work we do has um, using a thing called the Sale Data Bank, which uh, is it's well worth looking up. It's it's a one of the world leading trusted research environments operated by Swansea University. But all of our proposals go through committees that have members of the public involved in them uh, before any uh, activity happens. So we we discuss what we'd like to do, seek their views, put in uh, application to use the data in that way, and then once it's approved, we can do that. But we also then, as part of the research that we're undertaking, we, we received some additional funding from the Medical Research Council in London to undertake this work. And that involves embedding members of the public in what we do. So we have quite a number of meetings with people from different backgrounds, explaining to them what we, what we are doing and what we're not doing and why, and seeking their views on what we should be doing. So I enjoy that part. I th- it keeps you very grounded making sure that we're actually answering questions that they think are particularly relevant. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. Now, you mentioned sort of different parts of the population here, and I find this very interesting. How does the virus impact you know, different subsections of the public and different parts of the population. We've spoken already about how there's an age factor here, but there are other factors involved too, aren't there? So the biggest risk is with increasing age. Then if you look beneath that, probably the next biggest risk is about sex or gender. So if you you see that about two thirds of all the deaths have been in men, whereas, you know, if it was evenly distributed, you'd get 50-50. There's quite a lot of research into ethnicity, and we know that certain ethnic groups appear to be affected worse than other groups, particularly people from South Asian backgrounds and and the black population. There's quite a lot of research there, still not fully understood some of exactly why those groups would be at risk, some of which is related to poverty and having multiple health conditions. So if you look on average across the population, people from South Asian and Black African and Caribbean groups tend to be poorer than average and have more health conditions. And one of the things that's been really clear about this is that the impact of COVID has been much greater on deprived populations than it has on on the affluent population. And this is probably going to be quite a crude way of asking this question, but does it come down, are we, are we saying it comes down, or we're not sure whether it comes down to lifestyle? Uh, well, a- again, it's going to be a mixture of things, but I-, I would put it as much broader than lifestyle. It would be the environmental exposures that, that groups like that have. So it's not all, it's not all about choice. If, so if we were looking at inequalities in health, around the UK, the most deprived fifth of the population die about 10 years younger than the most affluent fifth mm. this before before covid comes along and what we find is like deprivation and poverty actually ages people so they actually age prematurely which explains why they also die prematurely 
And, that, and that's that's a really big factor. And then you think, well, so there are many things which affect those groups almost from the day they're born till the day they die. Not all of them are, if you like, self-imposed behaviours. There are some aspects of that that's important. We also have an issue, like, for instance, with overcrowding. So poorer people tend to live in more densely populated housing areas and also more people per house. So if you're thinking about an infectious disease, it spreads much more easily in an overcrowded situation. I mean, I think one of the, the aspects of this that, that people find fascinating is what's happening in Sweden compared to elsewhere. Mm. If you know Sweden had a different approach to it, um, it does have a much higher infection and mortality rate than the rest of the Nordic countries. But isn't isn't that much out of kilter with what's happening in the UK? Yeah. So some people yeah. then say, well, do you know what? They didn't lock down as much in Sweden as we did in the UK. Surely we, we overreacted. But one of the things that people forget is that in Sweden, almost half of all adults live alone. It's a very different situation. And because of that, they're naturally protected from spread. They, they also don't tend to have the same sort of hub and party culture as we have. So the exposures are quite different there. I, I'm going to ask another direct question here. What factor does weight potentially play in how severe the symptoms of COVID can be? Quite a, a, a large impact from what we're seeing from the data. It it's probably has no great impact on whether you catch the condition. But it seems to have a big impact on how severe it is. And it is a predictor of being hospitalized or dying from it. So it's it's one thing that we we, we have learned that um, weight does affect many different health conditions, but it seems to be particularly bad in, in COVID. We've mentioned a couple of times the environments in which COVID spreads. And we've talked about elderly people, of course, Almost everybody listening to this will remember in the first wave in particular, so you know, a year ago, how the virus sort of ripped through care homes and there were very tragic scenes there. But yeah, have you looked into, in particular, into, into particular sorts of environments, you know, care homes, but also schools has been in the news recently, hasn't it, with the reopening of, of, of education? Yeah, yes, we, ha- we have conducted work in, um, on, in care homes, which has been published and uh, one of our papers on transmission in school should hopefully be published in the next week or so in British Medical Journal of Pediatrics Open. If I go back to care homes, first of all, mortality rates are always high in care homes because, if you like, that's where we cluster people at the end of their life and, and, and the people are vulnerable. But, you know, we were tracking what happened in care homes from 2016 onwards and when the first wave of the epidemic broke in 2020, the mortality rate in care homes went up by about 70%. So, that it, you know, it had an absolutely huge impact. We've never seen the like of that before. And you can see how it is difficult to stop spread in care homes. I mean, I think people should realise that we've had quite a lot of spread within hospitals as well, despite the fact that we gown people and mask people and do almost everything we can do to, to prevent the, the spread. So it is difficult to prevent the spread um, within a care home situation. Was it still mismanaged though? Because I, I, I think I've heard 
politicians going on the record and actually being unusually frank and saying that the way that we dealt with care homes in the first instance was imperfect, to say the least. Because like you say, there's a huge group of very vulnerable people all clustered into quite a small space. I think initially that looked to be the case, but I know we've been involved in some research and as are other groups across the country. And much of the infection which we thought had come directly from hospitals into care homes, that now seems to be less likely. And the infection may well have come in from the general community and then also in relation to workers in those care homes. I think this is a real tricky area a lot of people who work in, in, in care home and the care setting are actually very low-waged individuals, and many of them need to work multiple locations to earn a living. And we now think that has played quite a big role in the spread within those establishments. Yes, because you've got locum workers or, or people, like you say, who work at multiple institutions going from one to the other day in, day out, and probably contributed to the spread of it that way. Is that what you're, that what you're saying? Yes, that, that seems to be what's, what's coming out from research. It's not all completely clear at the moment, but that seems to be the biggest lead. What do we know at the moment about asymptomatic spreading? Is it just as likely that you will spread COVID, do we think, if you're asymptomatic as if you are very symptomatic? To an extent. We know that about a third of the people who essentially have COVID, that if we can grow it from their noses and throats, don't have any symptoms ever. Um, and that comes from the surveys that are done from the Office of National Statistics and another one by, by Imperial College. They have very large-scale surveys of the general population, which involve swabbing people every couple of weeks and following up, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. And that gives us the best I, idea of how much COVID or how much of the infection, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, is in the general population. So we do know that there are a lot of people who are asymptomatic and it's easy to pass on um, to other people. Asymptomatic people may, may, may be a little bit less infectious than symptomatic people, but it's quite a difficult area to, to um, study in detail. I guess it's quite a, it's a big one, though. It's an important one, isn't it, down the, down the line? It, it, if we knew more about this, it, it potentially would change how we, how we reacted. Yes, um, and I, I think... Because we didn't know a lot about asymptomatic spread earlier on, mm. people were probably a bit more reluctant to close down society before it became more widespread. And, and I'm guessing that had we known that, some of the interventions would have happened a bit earlier. Sure. Let's go back to talking about data. Uh, obviously, that's something that you, you specialise in. And, and the way in which you use this data and how you use it to report things. How do you ensure, first and foremost, that the data you've got is secure. Right. So the um, system that um, we use in Wales, the Sale Data Bank, was um, set up about 12, 13 years ago, after two years of planning about how to undertake privacy protecting research so that the people who research using the data can't identify the people whose data it is. So it's quite a complex system. It's funded by Health and Care Research Wales, which is part of Welsh Government, and it involves the NHS effectively anonymising any of the data before it's shared with researchers. And there are, there are multiple ways in which um, the data are protected. It's been operating, as I said, for about 12 or 13 years. We've never had a problem with privacy breaches, and it's designed to ensure that we, we don't. 
If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. There must be people at least asking questions about this, I suppose. We've we've done on this um, on this podcast a number of times, actually, you know, big data, privacy, the, the internet. This, this is something which is quite a hot topic at the moment, isn't it? And people are concerned about the collecting of their inf- their personal information. No, no, absolutely. So as, as, as part of our quality assurance, we have to register and get investigated by many different groups each year, and they carry out assessments of how well we're doing things. So we have registration with lots of, lots of different groups um, across the UK. And there's a quality assurance and testing and penetration testing. All of that goes on on a regular basis. Is it a big job? Does it involve lots of lots of manpower to to collect all this and make sure it's all accurate, etc.? It, it is. Um, at the moment, there's probably around 150 people at Swansea University involved in this, and many other people around around the country. It does need all sorts of different technical and ethical and other skill sets which are brought together to ensure that it's it's done properly and, and accurately. So maybe just take us back to basics and talk us through the process. So where, where do you start with the collection of data and what sort of process, once you've got it all, how do you organise it? And then once you've organised it, how do you report it and use it? What's the, what's, what's the process? Uh, right. So we, um, uh, let's say if we stick with NHS data at this point in time, but we do use many different data sets from other organizations. So you can think of data as having, on the one hand, the bit about you, the identifiers, and then the content. And so what happens is the data gets split into two groups. One is, if you like, the content with a unique number attached to it. And the second one then is the, and the identifiers with a unique number. We never see any identifiers. All the identifiers are dealt with by the NHS, particularly NHS Wales Informatics Service. They already have a list of everybody who uses the NHS, and they use the identifiers to actually just say, yes, we know about this person. And everybody in Wales then has an NHS number. What they then do is they take that number and encrypt it into a non-identifying number. And they pass, if you like, the non-identifying number back to us with a, with a code, which is, allows us then to link from a different source the content of the data back to a, a unique number, which isn't identifying. And then that gets encrypted a second time with a different algorithm in the university and stored. And there are many different data sets that are stored. When we have a, a, a proposal to actually use the data to answer questions, that proposal goes to an independent group called the Independent Government's Review Panel. So none of the people who sit on that panel are employees of us. They are NHS data guardians and members of the public and experts in privacy protection. And they assess the proposal. And once the proposal is approved, then data sets can be provisioned to the researchers, which are then limited to the data they need to do to answer the questions. The system is based upon a remote access facility, so none of the data are actually sent anywhere. People have um, encrypted passwords for logging on. They can carry out their analysis, but they can't remove any results. When they ask for results to leave the system, they are also manually inspected to ensure there is nothing identifiable within them. 
So, you know, there are lots of checks and balances before then the results are used. You also reminded me that data is plural, isn't it? Which I always get wrong. I always say data is, <laughs> not, not, not data are. So thank you for that. No, 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 that's, that's my fault. Um, yes, I did Latin at school. So <laughs> I, I, but I think most people nowadays say data is rather than data are. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a hard habit to break. Oh, I've, I think I've been doing it all my life, yeah. Well, it's interesting you said school there because my next question was going to be for you to tell us more about yourself. T- tell us about your career and how you've ended up doing what you're doing. Well, I never planned to do any of that. I went to school in, in, in Dublin and Ireland. And like lots of boys, when I came to 18, it was time to leave school. Suddenly I had to think, well, what am I going to do now? Um, so I hadn't planned to do anything. I, I did quite well at school. And having a quick think about it, then I thought, well, I'll apply to do medicine. That sounds interesting. Luckily, there were no interviews at that stage. Otherwise, I wouldn't know be able to persuade people that this is something I wanted to do all my life, which seems to be the way people get into medical school now. And I, I went to medical school at Trinity College in Dublin and qualified there back in 1983, so from 1973. I worked in hospitals for a number of years. And then when I was working in a TB hospital, I was persuaded by a colleague to enter public health and epidemiology, which I did. And I went on a training scheme. And one of the part of our training scheme in those days, our communicable disease training, was actually um, conducted in Cardiff with Professor Stephen Palmer. So I came over here for a while to work for him. I only arrived on, I think, Monday. And on Tuesday, he sent me to North Wales because we had a, a big measles outbreak happening at that stage. And I was involved in trying to control that by vaccinating children as the epidemic moved down a valley. And and we did so very successfully. I then actually came to work in Swansea for a year and um, I worked for the NHS for a good number of years. At that stage, I was still publishing papers and the academics said I should perhaps go and join them. So I I found myself in academia, not really having planned to do so. But, you know, it's been a, a, a very interesting life. Sounds it indeed. And obviously Swansea's also got the attraction of the, the great outdoors too, doesn't it, which you're, which you're fond of? Well, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I hadn't realised um, until I came to work in Swansea about the magic of Gower Peninsula. And it's superb. It's absolutely outstanding. And I'm very fortunate. Every day I look out my window, I go, wow. I'm not surprised. It's beautiful. Just something random I, I wanted to pick up on there. You said you worked in a TB hospital. I mean, I think if not all four, at least three of my four grandparents were, were hospitalised with, with TB for a very long time. You know, they were they were in for a long time. I thought that has sort of d- died out. But obviously, it's something that even when you were when you were training, which can't have been that long ago, the TB hospitals uh, were, were still a thing. Yeah. I mean, that was back in the 1980s. Wow. Okay. And, um, but they're no longer there. Mm. But the, it was still a thing then. And, and interestingly enough, the, if you like, global epidemic of TB, which, which is still ongoing, mm. um, TB was much higher in Ireland than it was in the UK. Oh, what, why was that? There's various theories as to uh, that it actually took longer to reach Ireland than the UK and took longer for the population to build up immunity, which, which was quite interesting. So most people in Ireland of my generation have scars from TB the vaccination against TB, BCG, which you don't tend to see so much in the UK now. Very interesting. Okay, I'm going to ask you to to, to do something which people often ask of me because I study modern politics and they always 
ask me to say what's going to happen in the future. And I, and I almost always say things that don't end up transpiring. For you, what do you think is going to happen in the, you know, the sort of short, medium term in terms of this virus and our response to it? It's going to take several years before things return to what people think is, is normal. And, and the reason for that, as, as we'll have seen, is that we do need to get control of, of the virus, mainly by vaccination. These, you know, the social distancing and all that we're doing is, is tremendously effective. But the only way to sort of move on from that is if we get effective vaccines. But what people will also have learned is that it's still very easily spread. And unless you curtail foreign travel to almost nil, we will be introducing new infections into the country all the time. And also the possibility of new variants of infections. We still don't know how well the vaccines will work against all of that. So, so my guess is it'll take a few years before we have the entire world vaccinated. And we may need to vaccinate people with many different vaccines to get control. Oh, dear. <laughs> mm. um, I mean, I, I remember when vaccines were first mooted, you know, or, or they were spoken about a, a rollout at the end of the end of 2020. It was almost presented then as if that this was like this was the the beginning of the end, if, if you see what I mean. But we, we're recording on the day after the, the, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that, that the current low rates of COVID we're seeing in, in, in the UK are down to lockdowns and not down to, to the vaccines. So are, are we... Are we saying that the vaccines are not as effective as we would like them to be? No, we're not saying that. But come back to how infectious this virus is. Hmm. So at this point in time, we probably have vaccinated about half of the population. Um, half of the population will not control the spread of the virus. And so the reason why we have much lower numbers now, including much lower numbers in younger people who haven't been vaccinated, is because of the lockdown and the isolation and the distancing. So that's what's driven the numbers down. As we improve the vaccination of the population, then the vaccines will come more and more into play in keeping the numbers down. But they'll only keep the numbers down as long as we don't have new variants, which are, you know, the vaccines don't work as well as. And we also, at this point in time, still not quite sure how long the immunity from the vaccines will last because, mm. you know, we haven't been studying them that long. So far, they're looking good, but nobody can really tell until, you know, several years have gone past. And easy foreign travel. You don't see that resuming anytime soon either then. The issues that we'd have there is that if you move even a vaccinated population abroad and expose them to people got lots of infection and some of the new variants, that group will bring back the infections because the vaccine efficacy is never going to be 100%. And so we will we'll, we'll have some spread then as well. And that's why it's, it's absolutely you know, essential. And you see, this is an issue that's been brought up by the World Health Organization, is that none of us are really safe until all of us are safe. So it's really important that we have vaccine rollout right across the world. It's all Again, historian's hat on, but it's all reminded me a little bit of the First World War, you know, that was going to be over by Christmas within a few months and, and we're still going on four years later. Just feels, it feels like we're in, we're in this for the long haul. How long do you see queues outside supermarkets, limited people in the shops, mask wearing going on for? Certainly mask wearing I see going on for quite several years. But I think you can still enjoy lots of life and society with some social distancing and mask wearing. 
and then the use of some of the rapid tests for various events. And I think we'll see we'll see more of that going on. I think people are going to be naturally cautious and and still remain a little bit aloof and social distance for a considerable period of time, particularly older people, I think, who would mm. feel more, more more vulnerable. So I think this is something that will evolve over time. I think it takes several years till we are back a bit more to what people would have had before all of this. From what you're saying, I can't then imagine, not that I particularly care, because it's not something I'd like to be anyway, but I can't imagine a nightclub, for example, being opening and functioning as nightclubs do for, well, for this time that, that you're talking about for the next few years. Tricky, I think. But there are some trials going on in different parts of the world about um, testing people um, around some of those things. And they've already had a couple of, if you like, music concerts with slightly fewer people and some mask wearing and all that going on. I think there's a uh, there's a group of now signed up to go on a holiday somewhere warm, probably in Greece, and, and all being tested before they go on that. So there's some of these technological developments that will enable us to test how well some of these things could still go on. It, it all makes me wonder whether there would come a point where governments start doing what, for example, the, the governor of Texas or Florida has done, where they've sort of said, we've weighed up the what, what we see here and we're just going to stop all of this. Um, and it, it, and it, I suppose it brings me back to some of the stuff we were speaking about at the beginning, which is that you know, the, the job of scientific advisors, data analysts, is to give government recommendations and then politicians act upon it. But in lots of countries, particularly like this one, it's politically perilous, isn't it, for governments to be seen to be, in inverted commas, ignoring the, the science. Yes, I, I think it is difficult, to, um, particularly if you ignore the science, and then that leads to a much greater increase in the number of people who are sick and die. At some point in time, the, those politicians will have a reckoning. You, you can look around the world and say, gosh, look what they're doing in Texas and that, and say, hmm, it's interesting. They're, they are still having lots of problems. Again, people in Texas are more spread and, and it's much less denser population than most of the UK. There, there are many things which are different. Mm. If you want to pick a country which is just like, let's see how it goes, probably Brazil is the best one to look at. And if you look at that at the moment, that's going through a really, really tough time. Mm. Well, Ronan, there's, we, we've gone through a lot there. Thank you for sort of letting me pick through things with you and, and sort of challenge you on a few things. And, and you know, what you've said is it's, it's fascinating, not just your research, but the whole topic that we're living through. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. To find out more about Ronan's work, please visit his staff profile page on Swansea University's website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to our guest, Professor Ronan Lyons. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.